All right, chapter 12. And what a very relevant uh, section of Scripture. We're, we're getting to that place in the Revelation where we're going to be looking at what I call three, kind of the three cosmic uh, scenes of this, this great Revelation. And I want you to kind of think of it like this. Is, um, we, we, we go through, as we go through Revelation, we have what we call these, these cycles of activity that surround the question, what are the end times going to look like? And uh, so, so what happens is the end times are defined as that period of time uh, from, from Jesus' coming into the world the first time, born as a baby, to his second return. And so what happens is we, we kind of go through these three cycles. We look at that period of time once, twice, three times, four times, five times, six times, seven times. Well, we've gone through three times. And, and each of those three times, uh, we, we get to a point where John, as he's receiving this revelation, needs a timeout, right? And so God gives him a timeout. Uh, in, in those cases, what God does typically is he takes him up and he says, I'm going to show you, John, that everything that's happening everything that's happening is under my authority and under my control all the way to the very end okay so a lot of times when we're watching things happen and we say to ourselves the world's out of control it's crazy well in part we're right right um i mean we spent a little bit of time with my son and and, and daughter-in-law and and the grandkids this weekend and um so i decided i'd pull their leg a little bit so I took the dog out on a walk, and I came back, and I said, say, some guy's trying to shoot me with a blow dart. Well, they've got this going on in Lincoln right now. Somebody's driving around shooting, trying to shoot people with a blow dart in Lincoln, Nebraska. And they're like, really? I'm like, no, not really. <laughs> right? Uh, but you think about it, you're like, that's crazy. What's going on that you have, this, this, the, you have people shooting cars on highways? You have people shooting people with blow darts? You have some guy at a gas station last night, they, they tried to serve a warrant on him, and he pulls out and injures all these. I mean, it's just crazy. You're like, what's going on? John, God says, it's all under my authority. It's under control. Why does God let all this crazy stuff happen? Well, the, the, the answer to it is ultimately to let you and I know that, that yes, um, we are in a crazy world, but uh, our God has a plan to use the, all this bad stuff that's happening to bring people to himself, okay? When you get to chapter 12, you, you have this interlude in which before we go on to the next cycle and show you what's going to happen, we're going to stop for a minute and we're going to take a, a cosmic view of what has been happening since the beginning of time. Because you, you finally say, well, Satan seems like he's just running free. Like he just has free will. No, no, that's not true. John, let me show you what's been going on from the beginning of time. So you have three different pictures that we're going to look at. The first is, is chapter 12, the first seven verses, all right? Uh, that first seven verses kind of give you, gives you an overall idea of what, what has been going on in the heavens. Then we'll go to the second half of chapter 12, verses 7 to 12 is the second scene that you look at, and it adds a little bit more depth to what has been going on cosmically in the heavens from the beginning of time. And then the last part of it is uh, in chapter 12, verses 13 to 18, kind of close, close it out, and they give you these three pictures kind of answer a question that John has, is the devil just running free? And, and, and God's, again, going to say, no, he is under my dominion, 
All right, so let's dig in, chapter 12, verse 1. Um, you kind of feel it right away this, that, it's a, that this is a, a little bit different language. A great sign appeared in the heavens. A great sign appeared in the heavens, all right? Um, so it's almost like, John, I'm going to just show you in, in, a, in a big way, great way, all that has been happening since the beginning of time relative to this war, this battle that's, that's going on between the enemy and, and God, between the enemy and the church today. A great sign appeared, all right? And typically when the word sign is used, it's, it's meant to say something. The sign po points you to something. Signs, you don't just look at them and say, oh, that's a nice sign. Let's stop here. Let's take some pictures of this sign. What a beautiful sign. No, a sign is getting you somewhere, right? So he's showing you through this sign where God is taking the church. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. Kind of interesting that we're uh, uh, in that, that uh, moment in history where once again we get a eclipse, right? So if you woke up early this morning and you went outside, you got to see, right, the blood moon. Anybody see it this morning? Uh, really just sitting right down on the Earth's horizon, uh, it's, it's eerie looking, right? Uh, if you follow some authors, uh, John Hagee, uh, where I grew up in San Antonio, is a guy who uh, is kind of an interesting guy to follow. He's become popular across the nation relative to his, his preaching, speaking, writing around the, the topic of, of Israel. What I always like about John, John, John's an animated speaker. Have you ever seen him speak? He, he loves to... He loves to Hop and pop his hands like that and go. He's just, he's just one of those fiery, you know, um, evangelical preachers. And when you read John, uh, what I always tell people is understand that, that he represents a, a, a view of the end times that's very focused on Israel. He is Zionistic, all right? So uh, the literal nation of Israel is, is, is a big part of John Hagee's focus. One of his last books is just called The Four Blood Moons. And uh, if you've read that book or you've listened to some of it, you know, then you're probably shook up by going outside this morning and looking at that blood moon and saying, oh my goodness, this is a sign pointing, you know, to the end. And in John's view, you know, his way of looking at things, what God is going to do is, is rest restore literal Israel. The temple will be rebuilt right there. Okay. Um, so I read John Hagee, and I think, okay, it's, it's a view that uh, people have. Uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to everything that John says. I would say this, that when you, when you see a moon like that, is the moon pointing to something? Absolutely. You know what? Here's John, and what does he get to see? Here's this woman, and she's clothed with the sun, and the moon is underneath her feet. And so the sign is being used to point towards you know, a, a time when all of this battle that's been going on in heaven since the beginning of time will, will come to an end. I, I say it very simply this way. If I were to meet John Hagee, I'd say, I, I really thank you for your, your thoughtfulness and for your writing. I actually don't need your book to know that the end is very close because I have this book right here. And uh, it, it clearly points to what's, what's going on. Um, so... Look at the woman and think about who she is. Who is she? 
she's clothed, right, um, with the sun. So she's clothed with the righteousness of God. The moon underneath her feet, the reflection of that righteousness. On her head is a crown of 12 stars, right? Why 12 stars? Again, each of the 12 stars representative of the, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So we would literally say that those, those 12 stars represent the whole of the church from the beginning of time to right now, okay? That's, that's who we're talking about here. So um, you would say it this way. On one hand, the woman is going to be representative of a person, historical person, who's going to give birth. Her name was Mary, right? On another hand, the, the woman is representative of what? Something greater than just Mary. Who is Mary representing? The whole of the church. Who from the very beginning of time, since the fall of man in the garden, have awaited the fulfillment of a promise. That promise, I will send my seed into this world and he will crush the head of the serpent. Right? And so this woman is representing the church that's been waiting for waiting for, hoping for, the birth of this child, right? Because you look, and what is she? She's pregnant. And she's crying out. Crying out with birth pangs. The agony of giving birth. Last week we looked at, at Romans chapter 8, and I reminded you that today, right now, all of creation is crying out in agony. And actually, Paul in Romans uses this same language. He says, as, as though we were waiting for the birth of what? The second coming of Jesus Christ, okay? So this is the pains that were felt by all of those who lived prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. We need a savior. We need a rescuer. We need someone who will set us free. And so as you look at all of this, all of this history in the Old Testament, and here's Israel, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and now here comes Mary, and God is getting ready to give birth to what the Savior who's been promised and Jesus will, will come, right? And so there has been agony. There's been pain in the whole of the church leading up to uh, Jesus' birth. That same agony we feel today, but we're not waiting for the birth. The Savior's already come. What we're waiting for is his return, all right? So you, you get to see kind of both sides of history uh, with these words. Now, another sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Behold, a great red dragon. It's kind of interesting to me. Typically, when we think of, of Satan, we think of him not so much as a dragon, but as a what? What's our, what's our typical snake, right? You're the snake, okay? And uh, certainly in Genesis, when Satan appears and deceives Adam and Eve, that's, that's his appearance. He appears as a, a snake. So why a serpent here? There are some folks out there, and I shouldn't even say some, because it's just gotten to a point in America where so, so many theologians have just gotten lost. They really have. That today, a lot of people end up saying, well... The fact that, that John in the Revelation calls the devil a serpent, uh, a dragon, 
indicates the fact that the Bible is just another mythological storybook. Ever heard that before? Um, if you haven't, I, I tell you what, I hear it regularly, right? What is the Bible? Well, it's just a book. It was written by men and, you know, written over a long period of time and edited and people try to figure out who God is. But you, you can't really rely on it. It's not something that's meant to be read literally. I mean, certainly you don't believe, you know, that the, that the, that the devil is a, a dragon because when you look at literature from an Old Testament perspective, aren't there a lot of dragon stories? Aren't there a lot of dragon stories? There, there actually are. The Babylonians, in their um, writings, talked about Tiamat. And Tiamat was the water dragon. And uh, if you remember, what happens is Marduk, which is, is the, the primary god in Babylon, comes to rescue right, the people from the great dragon, ends up cutting the dragon in half, slaying the dragon. Okay? So what's being said by folks is, well, the Bible is just another dragon story. Okay? Or the Canaanites. Remember, the Canaanites had, listen to this, a seven-headed dragon. Interestingly enough, guess, guess what it says right there? Uh, a great red dragon with seven heads. Right there. Well, the Canaanites had that. They had a seven-headed dragon. His name was Lotan. And again, what, what had to happen is we need to have somebody who comes and kills the dragon and rescues us from the dragon. So people read that, they're like, well, the Bible is just a fairy tale. The Egyptians had a red dragon, Set Typhoon. And remember, Set Typhoon pursues Isis and ultimately is killed. Um, the Greeks, remember the uh, uh, goddess Leto, um, was pursued by the dragon Python and uh, ultimately gave birth to Apollo, and Apollo then kills the great dragon. So a lot of times I'll hear this, and folks will say, well, if you go back and you look at Babylonian culture or Canaanite culture, you know, some Egyptian culture, some of these other cultures, they all have dragon stories. I tell them, of course they do. What preceded all of these? Scriptures did. What preceded the Babylonian stories, the Canaanite stories? Where do they get it from? When you start to see similarities between some of the ancient literature and the Bible, it's because the Bible and the people of God clearly spoke what was going on and what was happening in, in, um, in the world to the degree that other, other nations began to adopt some of that language into their own stories. The difference between the Bible and Egyptian literature and Canaanite literature, which come after what God spoke to his people, is the fact that what we are reading is, in fact, inspired language. Now, is Satan literally a snake or a dragon? No. But is he referred to as such? Is there a place in the Old Testament that you can think of that we could turn to that possibly describes Satan as a dragon? Well, let's, let's see. Let's, let's try this one right here. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 27. I always tell people to be careful when you're reading the book of Isaiah because Isaiah is, is doing two things. He is speaking to the people who are going to be placed into exile. 
And, and so what Isaiah is trying to do, he's trying to say to Israel, Israel, come back to God, but I know you won't. And so because of your stubbornness, he's going to place you into exile, right? And, and during that period that you're, you're under exile, you'll groan and moan. You'll be as someone in birth pangs, hoping for who will set us free from our, our captivity. And then God will come and he will redeem you. He will set you free again. But don't miss this. Isaiah, when he talks about uh, Israel becoming set free, he also is pointing forward to, Isaiah is always pointing forward that period in history when God will redeem the whole of mankind and set free the whole of humanity. And so in chapter 27, you, you get this language that kind of points to this God who will set free his people. Uh, just read this with me at the very beginning. It says, in that day... And he's really pointing forward to not just that day, the, the time when they'll be set free from captivity, but that day, the whole of, 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 uh, of eternity, when, when the end comes. In that day, with his hard and great and strong sword, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. All right? So um, while we typically think of, in biblical terms, Satan being referred to as, as a snake, uh, Isaiah is the prophet who pictures him also as this twisting great dragon that needs to be slayed, saying that the day will come, the end will come, when God will in fact slay this dragon for all time, okay? So uh, it's easy for me to respond when I get people coming to me and saying, well, the Bible's just a mythological book. It's not different than other books. I'm like, well, no. Uh, actually, the idea of, the drag of, of Satan as a dragon is not new. It was part of, of Scripture as much as the snake is a part of Scripture. And in all of that precedes the kind of literature that you find in the Canaanite culture and you find in Egyptian culture and certainly Greek culture. All that comes after they've actually borrowed it, borrowed it from the Bible. That's why it ends up in various mythological stories. Here's the difference. The Bible is not a myth. This actually happens. Okay? This great red dragon has seven heads. Come back over to Revelation. And ten horns. And on his heads, seven diadems. This is verse 3. This great red dragon has seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, seven diadems. I want you to make note of this. This is absolutely important. That the devil, uh, the serpent, the deceiver, always seeks to appear to people as what? God. As good. Right? Never as bad. You know, we're getting close to, to Halloween, and typically when we picture the devil, you know, we get scary suits and masks and all that kind of stuff, and we try to picture the devil as, as woo, scary. No, the devil always comes saying, I'm the good guy. I'm the right, I'm the right person. This is good stuff that I'm trying to do for you. Okay, uh, thus he is posing as God. He has this, the seven heads, right? So seven being whose number? Jesus' number, okay? Having 10 horns, 10 being what? The Yahweh's number, the perfect number, God's number. On his head, these seven diadems or jewels. So he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm not the bad guy. I'm actually the good guy. 
And uh, so it's, 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 it's always interesting to see him pictured that way. Verse 4 is a little cryptic, and so we'll read it, and then I'll tell you, hang on to it, because it'll become more apparent to you what it's signifying when you get to that second picture that we're given. He says, his tail, the dragon's tail, swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Okay? Well, these stars of heaven, remember Mary, she's, the woman has set these stars, 12 stars on her heads, representing the, the tribes of the church. These stars are different stars. When we say we're going to sweep them down to the earth, these stars represent beings, heavenly beings, as in angels. When it says a third of them, it's, again, it's not literal, but what it's signifying is that when, when a war took place in heaven between what God and the dragon, Satan, it wasn't Satan by himself. It was Satan who is now what surrounded with other angels. Those angels are going to be cast down to the earth with him. And so when we talk about, when I talk about um, this world that we live in, um, and this is fun to do. This is really fun to do with um, high schoolers and, you know, uh, some of our middle schoolers. I always like to say, do you believe in ghosts? And, uh, you know, sometimes you get all this stuff on television in Hollywood. You got poltergeists and ghosts and all that stuff. And, uh, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's ghosts. You get these guys that use those little machines. They're reading like, uh-oh, I think grandma's in the room. I think she's mad, <laughs> you know. I'm like, yeah, she's mad. So I'm like, no, no, no. Look at just look at the Bible. There's there in in all of creation, you have all of creation described in the book of of Genesis, right? All the all the creatures that God makes and the things in the heavens and the, the stars. So we know that. But in addition, we have the creation of the angels, right? Which are heavenly beings who are created to serve serve God. We don't have ghosts, we don't have grandmas running around, but we do have what we call demons. And when somebody says to me, I think a demon is after me, I tell them an angel is after you. It's a fallen angel. And this fallen angel has one desire, and that is to destroy you, to separate you just as they're separated from God. They would like to separate you from God. They're angels. Listen, these are warriors. These are God's warriors created to war. So when you talk about Satan, who, who's a fallen angel, and his array of angels that surround him, well, what I'm saying to you is we, we ha there's never a moment in our lives when we don't have coming against us warrior angels that, that are desiring to do what? To destroy us, to deceive us, to cut us off from God and appear as the good guy, okay? So... Uh, I'll just, I'm going to use an example. Islam. We're the good guys. I mean, if you talk to people in, in the Islamic religion, what would they say? We're warriors of Allah. What are you trying to do? We're trying to rid the world of all these false people who are trying to, 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 to you know, speak, speak of false gods like, like, G, like Jesus. And, uh, and so they've been deceived to believe what? That what they're doing is right and good. Yihadists. If you said to them, are you, why would you get in an airplane and try to blow up a tower? Why would you do that? 
we're doing good. We're serving the world. We're the good guys. We're not the bad guys. Satan has deceived people to believe we're the good guys. Okay? Now, I'm going to get a little bit more controversial. Well, we might as well since we're in a Lutheran church, right? <laughs> I turn on the news, and here are these guys out marching with signs as the Pope comes into town. And here's what their signs say. The Pope is an antichrist. That's what they were holding up, those signs. The Pope is an antichrist. They had signs like that. These news reporters are filming this, and they, pick, they film this one lady who comes up to argue with them, and this lady, you can just see her, she's like, ah, and they're like, ah. And so the news reporter comes up, and finally he says, listen, he says, do you really think you're doing the world good by carrying signs around that says the Pope is an antichrist? I mean, do you really think that's a good thing? I mean, he says, I've noticed everybody walks like way around you, and nobody wants to talk to you except that one lady who was yelling at you. And, and do you think you're going to change your mind? Well, this is what they said. They said, we don't care. if, we, if we, We're not here to change anybody's mind. We're just here to speak the truth, and that's what we're going to do. Well, I don't really advise. That, I don't think it's a great idea. I mean, I'm not going to lead an effort on the part of Peace Lutheran to carry signs around that say the Pope is an Antichrist. I don't think that's a great idea, right? Okay, at the same time, let me ask you this question. If you were to pick up something called the, the Book of Concord, what would that book be? What is that Book of Concord? You guys know what the Book of Concord is? Any of you guys? Okay, so, so it kind of takes you back into the, to the 1500s, right? And what was going on in the 1500s? That was a little bit controversial. Some monk was monk, monkeying around, right, with things and, and, uh, and writing all these, these documents, right? Well, we, we really can't fully comprehend or even appreciate, I don't think, all, all of what was going on in that period of history. And, and even, even after me, even after reading book after book after book after book and trying to understand that period in history, it's a difficult period of history to understand because we don't, we don't see the abuse going on between the, the, the church and the state and the battles going on between the, the two of them. But there, there was a tumultuous period of time. And, and what Luther was, was trying to do is, was really actually put on the table some questions that he believed would benefit both the Pope and the church. And his big concern was, well, I mean, his biggest concerns were twofold. Number one, how can we as a body of people say that when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, okay, and ex cathedra means in official capacity, Seated, you would say it literally, seated upon his throne at cathedral. So it's when the Pope is actually, is actually making a declaration that will become part of the theology of the Catholic Church. All right? And that's how that works. In the Catholic Church, what, is, what norms, what defines what I believe? The Bible, yes. Okay? Um, it, it helps define what I believe. But not just the Bible. In, as a Catholic, I would say it is the Bible and what? The historical writings of the church. In, in specific, all of those statements that have been made by the Pope, ex cathedra, they are to be treated as 
literally from God. So if a pope gets up and says, listen, Mary, the mother of Jesus, never died. She ascended into heaven. Does it say that anywhere in the Bible? No, it doesn't. So if I said, well, I, 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 don't, I don't know if, I mean, it's certainly not anywhere in here as, as something that I should, I should believe. But as a Catholic, that would become what? That's a part of my theology, right? If I were to say, okay, there, when you die, you, you, you don't necessarily go to heaven or hell. You, you can go to this place called purgatory, okay? Is it in here? Purgatory, is it in, is it in this book? N no. Now, if, if you have the Apocrypha, what, what we're referred to as the Deuterocanonical books, right? Can I find some verses that, that point to something that might be purgatory? I mean, it's never described as purgatory, but I could, I could pull out some verses and say, well, that's what it's talking about, purgatory. But how do we have that teaching of purgatory? Well, the Pope said that stuff in the Apocrypha, that's purgatory, and here's what happens when you die. You have choices. You can go to heaven, you can go to hell, you can go to purgatory, right? Or we could go to limbo. Now, we, we wouldn't qualify for limbo, but a baby dies. If a baby dies, a baby qualifies to go to limbo. Limbo is right. It's kind of like purgatory, except it's better than purgatory, because in purgatory, you're trying to get out of purgatory, and the baby doesn't try to get out of limbo, because limbo is where you're going to stay forever. You're going to stay a baby forever. You're going to stay in that perfect state as a little baby. You're going to live forever. How do I know that? Is that in the Bible? No. Is it in the Apocrypha? Well, no, there's a few verses we could pull out of the Apocrypha and say, well, that's what that's talking about. But it doesn't talk about limbo anywhere in the Bible, not even the Apocrypha. So why do we believe it as Catholics? Because the Pope said it ex cathedra. Isn't this true? That's how it works. Luther is this monk that comes along and goes, whoa, time out. Pope equals human being equals potential for fallacy equals not on the same grounds as Scripture. We should be allowed as Catholics to debate and to um, question and to call for scriptural analysis of any of the teachings of our church. We should be allowed to do that. And so when Luther posted what are called the 95 Theses, he was saying, Here's what I would like to be able to do. I want to be a good Catholic. But as a good Catholic, I believe the Pope is a human being, is capable of fallacy, and no human being can speak ex cathedra without the potential of fallacy. We should measure everything that's ever said by Scripture alone. He's saying, can we talk about that? Let's talk about that. As a church body, let's talk about that. The second thing that Luther was trying to do in his day and age was he says, we got a problem in our church. I believe one of those things that has been taught is that we can actually pay for, physically pay for cash, right, our sins. We can buy from the church a piece of paper signed by the Pope that pre-absolves us from sins that we're getting ready to commit. And so what happened is, if you've, if you've got a piece of paper like that, you might have a problem, right? So what all Luther is trying to do in that period of time is he's trying to say, I think we should talk about that. That's, that to me seems like I can't find that in here at all. Now, Luther puts these things up on the 
the town bulletin board and says, let's talk about these things. And what happens to Luther? Well, the Pope issues what is called a papal bull. And uh, see, Nebraskans aren't the only ones full of bulls. <laughs> the papal bull is a statement that says, I hereby require Luther to take back all of the statements that he's placed upon this bulletin board for us to talk about. Take them back. Recant them. And if Luther chooses not to recant them, then I issue this bull requesting his death as an official heretic, false teacher in the church. Luther says, time out. Wait a minute. Aren't we going to just talk about this? Could we not like put it on the table? Could we have like dialogue about it? Nope. We're not talking about it. By just questioning this pope, you have already committed heresy, and you'll either take that back or you will die. Okay? So when you get this thing called the Book of Concord, you're looking at a piece of history that takes you back to a period of time where, where Luther is wrestling with this desire on the one hand to help transform the church, reform it, right? But on the other hand is facing the reality of I'm going to die by holding on to this, this thought that we ought to question a human being, okay? In the Book of Concord, there's this little treatise, a little document that I think today would be filled with much controversy. And it's entitled um, <laughs> A Treatise on the Power and Premacy of the Pope, in which Luther does not say what was on those signs. On those signs that were being held up, it said the Pope is an Antichrist. If you read the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, it says the Pope is the Antichrist. Hmm. Did Luther say that? Yes, he did. Why would Luther say something like that? Okay. Well, part of it is right here. Any human being who's deceived, who is placed into a position of deceiving other people, Right? into believing something that's not true. Now, I remember the Pope in his time was doing what? Saying to people, you can purchase pieces of paper that pre-absolve you of your sin. So that's, just, that's deceiving people. You, you belong, you're not, that's not, a, that's not belong to, to God. That doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. That belongs to who? If you're not with Jesus, who are you with? You're with Satan. And what is an Antichrist. We hear the word, and we're like, oh, it's like a huge monster. No, think of what the word means, anti-Christ. You're coming against Christ. If you cause people to believe that I can actually purchase the absolving of my sins, guess what you're doing? I'm putting people under the law. I'm causing them to be what? They're no, I don't, do I need Jesus Christ? No, I don't. I, I, can, I, I got the indulgence. And so what Luther is trying to say in his time is anyone who is trying to, to do something that deceives people and moves them away from, right, the only hope that you have, namely the covering of your sins in Jesus Christ, that's Antichrist. And so Pope, Pope guess what you're 
doing. You're seating yourself in a position. Uh, Luther wasn't interested in the person of the Pope. He was interested in the position of the Pope. He said, this position right here, whoever is in it, who ought to be raising up Jesus Christ is actually doing what? Deceiving people and moving them away from Jesus Christ. Okay? When you start to look at these, these, this section of, of Scripture, one of the things I want you just to kind of roll around in the back of your mind because it's, it's very current. It's right here in front of us today is, um, have things changed? Have things changed? Or today, are we still under the same kind of conditions? Who, if we were to say, what's the Antichrist today? Any religion, just think about this. Remember the white horse. Any religion that does what? That deceives me into believing that I... I don't need Jesus Christ or that the, the church is my salvation is doing the work of who? The dragon. And so um, what, what John is seeing here is actually not new to the revelation. It's just being really clearly spelled out for him that if you go back in history and you look at what's going on, you have this clashing that's going to go on between um, a God who is intent on setting his people free through a birth, through a son, through Jesus Christ. And a great red dragon who pretends he's God and brings a different message to people that deceives, that moves people away from that child, Jesus Christ. All right, we'll pick up with that next time we come together.